So thank you. I think that's all ready to go. And welcome everyone to the Perusia podcast. We are now streaming on the St. Paul Center and Dr. Scott Hahn's page as well as Perusia. So welcome to everyone around the world, those on the EWTN as well. You're very welcome to join us. Very excited at a time. Um, it's been difficult at the moment for many people who are still in lockdown, uh, although we're starting to see restrictions lift and people are starting to get out there and reconnect, going to church for the first time in, in three months. It's been quite exciting for many of us, uh, still mixed feelings for many of us, and still we've got to be safe and careful for many of us. But we've been talking, hope to die. It, the topic doesn't sound very appealing, doesn't it? We hope to die. Do we ever hope to die? However, after reading this book about holding my hand, hope to die, I'm telling you, I've never been more excited about the topic than now after reading this book. Um, and the author of this book is none other than the one and only um, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn. Hello, Dr. Scott Hahn. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, down under to you, That's my right. dear friend, Brother Charbel. <laughs> it's wonderful to be with you now. This is like twice in the last two months. I feel as though I've got on a virtual rocket and zoomed down to Australia. So it's great to see your face again and to engage in conversation twice now. Thank you so much. It's true. Um, uh, this technology, uh, you know, St. Paul Center, as uh, the patron you have, St. Paul was known for traveling around the known world at the time and uh, by ship and having shipwreck and trying to spread the gospel. Um, what would he have done with this technology? <laughs> it's I have probably no idea. But <laughs> it's been exciting for us. You know, just as a parenthesis, uh, we did the tabulation and we discovered that last year uh, we did 62 engagements. That is the St. Paul Center accompanying me to 62 different places the very year I turned 62. That was by far and away the most ever in any year. And it was the first time that everything I did was basically with the St. Paul Center. In the last 90 days, including our time together several weeks ago, we've had over 62. It's closer, I think, to around 70 events by Skype, by Zoom, podcast, and so on. And, and, and so I can't help but wonder if uh, the Holy Spirit is being blown through the prayers of St. Paul so that the, you know, the, the sales are up and we are able to do so much more than anybody could have imagined. You know, if you think back to 20 years ago, if this COVID virus had struck then, we would have all not only been paralyzed, but relatively silent or absent. Yes, It's amazing true. to see what this technology affords in the way of apostolic opportunities and I really want to commend you and thank you, not only for this opportunity that we share, but also for what you were telling me beforehand, this idea of the Parousia Academy. I don't know how much more exciting it can get for our brothers and sisters down under to have Dr. Christine Wood, I forget her married yes. name, but also now Dr. Andrew Wood as well, yes. and uh, a number of others. And so, you know, I did say, let's talk about this after the show, but I do hope you talk to our our listeners, our audience about this in the days and the weeks and the months to come, because this is an exciting opportunity for everybody to get formation down there in scripture, in doctrine, and spirituality as well. So uh, advertisement is over. <laughs> that's right. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Well, that's right. We are working uh, yeah, vigorously to get this academy up, up off the ground and, and love to have uh, international collaboration and, and love to align doing what the St. Paul Center has been doing so beautifully. Um, love to just introduce people in a systematic way to scripture and theology, philosophy, and all those things. So thank you. Please pray for that. And I invite everyone to pray for that and uh, and get to know us at perusiamedia.com. But uh, 
about this book. Now, you've had quite a few interviews about this book, Hope to Die. Uh, I'm holding now an Australian copy in my hand. This is a, a paperback um, available. So we've been able to eliminate shipping and have that locally produced. Thanks be to God to the, the technology printing on demand. Um, and, you know, hundreds now have, have, have been distributed and we hope for more. So it's now available at the, for those in Australia, you can go to perusiamedia.com. Uh, we'll put the links in. But those in the United States, if you are watching this now, go to the St. Paul Center website. And again, we'll, we'll get that link to you as well and get your copy today. This is an amazing book. And I, I love, um, you, you meant you, you tackle some key, key areas. Like we talked last time about the resurrection of the body. But if I can sort of start with this concept where you talk about the breath of life, God breathing life into Adam, and then the idea of him dying, you know, if you eat the, the fruit of, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if you eat it, you will die. You weren't talking about, or God wasn't talking about um, a physical death. It was a divine death that you talk about here. Could we maybe start then launch and, and a bit about the book and start unpacking a bit more? You know, you couldn't have asked a better question to start off the conversation because I consider those 10 verses from Genesis 2 verse 7 to verse 17 to be the most unexplored, the most misunderstood, and even for Catholics who want to delve deeply into the Bible, the single most underrated. Uh, it is so crucial. Uh, it's so rich, and yet it, it seems like it's so surfacy. It really is just a story from antiquity, our kind of mythology, but it's not. It's much more than anything merely human. It's a, a kind of divine penetration into the mystery of who we are, what we're made to be, and how we fell short of that to set the stage for the incarnation. So in verse 7, as you said, we have the description of how our first father was formed from the dust of the ground. And it's significant that in the Hebrew, the word for ground is almost the same as the word for man. Adama is the feminine form of Adam. So he is formed from the dust of the ground to show us our own humble origins. We come from dust and the dust return. But then God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word for life there is zoe, not bios. And that kind of reinforces the, the notion that you find in patristic sources, that the first breath that Adam breathes is not just oxygen, you know, the air that he would be sharing with the animals. This is the breath of God. So mm. this is not just natural life that you breathe through your body. This is the supernatural life that originates from the Holy Spirit, from God. And it's not, we're not trying to distinguish in order to separate or act as though they're somehow opposed, because obviously natural life is inseparably united to supernatural life, both human and divine, at least at the beginning, in, in, at the inception of our first father. And so just drop down 10 verses and you'll see in Genesis 2 verse 17 that God is basically inviting Adam to enjoy the fruits from all of the trees in the Garden of Eden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that forbidden fruit has attached to it of course, that threat. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, bayom is the expression in the Hebrew, the day you eat of it or when you eat of it. Uh, I'm not saying that when they eat, it doesn't have any reference to physical death, but the very fact that physical death comes years later shows that, in fact, the primary meaning of death 
is not natural or physical, but supernatural and spiritual. And so when you turn the page and you read chapter three and you discover that they went ahead and they ate the forbidden fruit, but they didn't drop dead, it sort of invites the query. Well, wait a minute, back up. Was God just issuing an idle threat? Mm -hmm. He could have said the day you eat of it, you'll deserve to die. You'll be sentenced to die. You will begin that long, slow and painful process called mortality. But no, the statement is relatively simple. When you eat it, you will surely die. And so what do we make of that? Well, I think what we have to make of it is a sacred mystery. And the New Testament points back to the old because in 1 John 5.17, we hear about sin as being something terrible, but mortal sin as being the worst of all. And what is mortal sin? Well, it's the sin unto death. The Greek word is thanatos, the same term used in Genesis 2.17. The day you eat of it, you will surely die the death, thanatos. And so did they die? Oh, yes, they did. But what life did they lose? It was divine. Well, is that really death? Yeah, that is not a metaphorical death. That is a metaphysical death because the loss of divine life is not less of a death than the loss of human life, but far more grave and serious, but subtle. Because the life that is human is sacred, but the life that is divine is not less sacred, but more. So if it's more valuable, we have to recognize that it's also more vulnerable, not only to our first parents, but also to us. So the original sin that they committed is the original sin that we contracted. We don't commit original sin, we contract it. But what is original sin that our first parents commit? It is basically a mortal sin. They commit spiritual suicide. They still continue living natural, physical, human lives. But when they reproduce and when they transmit human life through generation, it's only human life. And so their offspring are born alive humanly, but dead spiritually. And this is the mystery of original sin that you read about in Romans 5, 12 to 21, which is not only the locus classicus, the, pl the classical place to go for the church's teaching, but it is also a battlefield where more misunderstanding, more misinterpretation, you know, you know, in my own tradition as Protestants, we thought that infants were born depraved, guilty, and all of that. Well, in the Catholic tradition, echoing St. Paul in Romans 5 and St. Augustine as well, we are born deprived, deprived of divine life, not depraved. I mean, we may, in a certain sense, live down to our own depravity in that sense, but we're born deprived of divine life, and so we are born spiritually dead, and that's why Paul sets the stage in Romans 5 for treating baptism in Romans 6, because in the opening verses of Romans 6, he just reminds his readers that when you were baptized, you died with Christ, you were raised to new life, and suddenly you begin to get a sense that, wait a minute, this is not a metaphorical resurrection. If we were born spiritually dead, and through the waters of baptism, we are brought to divine life that is intrinsically immortal and eternal and supernatural, that is far more of a resurrection than what Lazarus got after four days when Jesus raised his friend from the tomb, because he got natural life back, physical, human life. We get spiritual life back. And this is a remarkable gift that, again, is misunderstood and vastly underrated because this great gift of divine life, more valuable than human life, is also more vulnerable. And so it has to be protected. You know, what we call human freedom, human rights, is precisely what targets 
and jeopardizes the greatest gift of God of, of all time, and that is divine life. You know, God gives us the world. God gives us our bodies. God gives us our friends and family. These are all good gifts. But what we mean by grace, what Paul means by grace, is not just the gifts that God gives us, but the gift of God is God himself. So yes. that the life of the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, is suddenly ours through baptism. And just like human life grows and matures, divine life necessarily grows and matures, or else it is sort of stilted or handicapped, as it were. But the analogy of the natural human life that we grow into and the supernatural divine life isn't just a coincidence. It's precisely how God created the analogy of human life for the purpose of our understanding this deep mystery that we are called to grow as sons and daughters of God and not just a son of Fred and Molly Lujan. And once we get this, I know all of a sudden, the doctrines of the Catholic faith are not just, you know, a checklist of things that we believe in. You know, they're more like spokes that converge upon the hub, which is Christ, because then we realize, wow, the, the, the mystery of faith is the mystery of Christ. This is not plan B. This was plan A. When we were made in the image and likeness of God, we discover that Christ was not made in the image and likeness of God from all eternity. He is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. And so we fall in our first father, Adam, but we end up rising to, basically we rise back to where we were in our first father. But as we celebrated or we wanted to celebrate the Easter vigil, it's, it's actually a, a a happy fault. We're we're falling upward because we end up in Christ even higher and better off than we would have been in Adam, even if our first father hadn't sinned. And again, that confirms the fact that this is more, salvation is more than a divine salvaging. It really is the accomplishment of the plan and the purpose that God had in the beginning, but he first had to show us, even before the fall, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That the incarnation is not sort of an alternative strategy. It was the main event that was the plan of God from all eternity. And it's like, wow, this is almost too good to be true unless it's all true. And it is. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Amazing. I mean, it's it's almost like you've got a sixth sense there. As you're making one point, I have a question. And you answered that question <laughs> as we we're going through. That was just phenomenal. Um, but th there is a, I was going to say this, this theme of life and death and, and, uh, the idea of losing human life versus using divine life. Then you said plan eight. Now it took, we estimate, you know, 4,000 or so years or, or more uh, of biblical history to then when Jesus finally comes to restore the life, but even give us this divine life. Why, why is it, why has it taken, why did he take that long? Um, did he, was there a purpose behind all that? I mean, all the prophets that came, all those sacrifices of the old Testament leading up to this moment in time when, the Messiah finally came, and um, what, what what is it there? Because I, I understand there's this other tree that was sitting in the garden that we we sometimes miss miss a lot. This tree of life, and then the, and the access to the garden was blocked for a reason. Tell us, uh, yeah, what there's a there's another type of tree of life or the fruit of the tree of life that comes later that you've touched on um, in your teachings. Tell us about it, and and, and I guess I, my understanding is um, it wasn't that. God wasn't ready. Was it more that we weren't ready in, in the sense of receiving this ultimate um, Messiah coming to pay our debt? 
Okay. Well, my first thought, Charvel, is good question. But actually, my second thought is good questions because there's more than one, <laughs> but they're all good. But we have to kind of get each truck through the intersection one at a time. Yes. yes. You know. So first of all, when we look at the um, when we look at the biblical narrative, we do see history, but it isn't the kind of secular or scientific history that we prefer or we demand. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't meet our demands, it really isn't history. Well, you know, to determine how much clock time it took for the creator to fashion the universe might seem to people to be real history. Uh, But I don't think that's the purpose, because ultimately, if we did know how much clock time it took for God to make the world, we still wouldn't know why he made it or who we are or what plan he has for us. And so maybe just maybe the purpose of his narrating creation and the fall in the way that he does isn't really to satisfy our scientific curiosity or our chronological curiosity. It really is to scratch where we ought to itch and not just where we do. And so what God is showing us in the beginning is why he made us, who we are, where we live. Why did he make us to be his children? You know, who are we? Sons and daughters. And so when we situate all of this in the opening chapters of Genesis, in a certain sense, It's not less scientific, it's much more, but it's a divine science that shows us the plan of God and not merely chemical, biological science. But to know the mind of God is not like anti-scientific. If this is truly who God is, our creator destined to become our father, and who we are, creatures, servants destined to become sons and daughters, and what our first parents did by eating the wrong fruit and dying spiritually by stuffing out the life of God in their soul, suddenly you begin to step back and realize, okay, this isn't less history. Theological history is more profoundly and precisely historical when it tells us the most important truths about who we were in the beginning and why we are what we are right now. The next truck to get through the intersection (laughs) has to do with the two trees of the many trees from which they could eat. There was one they couldn't, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as you indicated, the other one is the tree of life. Now I'm tempted, but I'm going to try to resist the temptation like they didn't do. Um, I'm tempted to kind of look at how it is that the tree of life doesn't make a lot of sense because if they are to live forever, why would you have a tree of life? Why would you need a tree of life? We're going to live forever anyway. So the very fact that there is a tree of life that we read about in Genesis 3 after the fall, lest they put forth their hand and eat of the tree of life and live forever, he drives them out of the garden. It's not because he doesn't want them to eat from the tree of life. He doesn't want them to eat from the fruit of the tree of life in a state of mortal sin because that is going to seal their fate in alienation from him. And so what he does in driving them out of his presence and driving them out of the Garden of Eden and driving them far from the tree of life is he gives to them, you might say, a penitential sentence, but only if you understand penance as restorative, as discipline, but not a vendetta. It isn't like God getting even with them. It's God setting it up so he can get them back to him through suffering, as it were. The other thought that I had, too, with regard to the tree of life is that, you know, we we tend to forget that before the fall of man, another fall had already occurred. Now, this might just seem like 
uh, an alien imposition of something utterly extrinsic by Christians who sort of want to impose a grid that is alien to the text. But in fact, the ancient Jewish interpretive tradition sees it the same way. Even though we don't have any chronicle of how the, the fall of the angels occurred, we know that that serpent is not merely a serpent. It's, it's speaking, but it's also tempting, and then it accuses. And so what do you call the one who tempts and the accuser? Well, as Jesus says, he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So in John 8, Jesus is clearly identifying the serpent with Satan, Satan as a liar, but ultimately the lie is a means to an end. Spiritual death is his principal goal. So he's already fallen. And as we read in Wisdom 2.24, it's through the envy of the devil that death entered the world. He died spiritually by snuffing out the life of God in his soul through prideful disobedience. And now he is going to set the stage so that he can get them to step into the same prideful disobedience whereby they will snuff out the life. And so, you know, the tree of life, you don't need a life insurance policy if you're going to live forever. You know, if you live in asbestos house, you're not going to, you know, get cancer insurance uh, unless you do, because, you know, it's going to be. So there, there's a combination here that I just want to point to and say, wait a second, before the fall, guess what? There already was a fall. And so what looks to be like paradise, what looks to be like a playground, what looks to be like a honeymoon suite is actually a battlefield and not just one where a battle might occur if they sin, but the battle is occurring to get them to sin. And so the catechism echoes this ancient patristic interpretive viewpoint that from the dawn of history, human life has been a dour combat with the forces of evil. And so suddenly you're looking at something that you thought, well, this is like a children's Bible story, but no, it's, it's, it's a drama that includes horror and, you know, it, it, it's scary. It's, it's, it's realistic. It's, where we are today. And so, you know, I want to go back and kind of blow off the dust from the gems here. They look just like stones, but in fact, the opening chapters of Genesis were understood by the ancient rabbis and the early church fathers and the medieval doctors to be like diamonds and rubies and emeralds and so on. And so Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you know, it's like the cornerstone of the whole edifice of sacred scripture. Go back and don't fall for its being underrated. You're going to find wisdom there that is not only divine, but practically inexhaustible. But as you mentioned, it sets the stage, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the forbidden fruit consumed by the first Adam and Eve, sets the stage for the new covenant that will usher in a new creation precisely because of what the new Adam, Jesus, does, along with the new Eve, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And we can't go into the details that we find, especially in John's gospel. But, you know, by the time you get to the climax of John's gospel in chapter 19, you discover where the early church fathers get the understanding that the crucifix is what they describe as the tree of life. Because he is laying down his life out of love and obedience to the Father for the salvation of the human race. He is doing what the first Adam should have done in order to undo what the first Adam did, but he's not alone because at the foot of the cross, there is the Blessed Virgin Mary, whom he calls woman, just as Adam called Eve woman there in Genesis 2. So woman, behold your son, and then to the beloved disciple, behold your mother. So there is a drama here that occurs at Calvary on Good Friday, 
whereby the new Adam and Eve offer up their life in obedience. And as a result of love, they're not losing their life. He is making his life a gift of love, and she is giving consent to that sacrifice of her beloved son. And in the process, what is the Eucharist? The Eucharist becomes known as the fruit of the tree of life. You eat of that and you live forever. That is the antidote to mortality. Not only physical mortality, the, the death of the body, but also the spiritual death of the soul, which occurred with the beginning and the fall of our first parents. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I got all of the trucks through, but you did uh, very well. <laughs> I tried Absolutely. my best. Look, thank you. Um, amazing, because it sets us up th this um, idea that the life that's now restored, it's more than, it's not just restored, but it's greater now. Um, and now this Eucharist that we we can partake in, it really is um, this this marriage or this union with God in such an intimate way that angels only envy of it. I mean, not that they should be envious, but the idea that they wish they could receive this 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 food that we get to receive. Um, how do we appreciate this more um, in this time? We're preparing next week for the Corpus Christi um, feast, and what a great opportunity to reconnect. Um, as Catholics, with the understanding of what privilege we have with the Eucharist, the body and blood of soul and divinity of Jesus Christ Himself, can we, you've got an event coming up next week as well. Yeah, yeah, in that, in that reminded weekend. me of that. Let me let me just mention that because yes, please. we've already mentioned the ongoing formation of the Perusia Academy. I should also mention back to back events that are going to be available on the the St. Paul Center for registration. One yes, is going please. to be on Saturday, June thirteenth, which is the eve of Corpus Christi. And this event is going to be for us on Saturday morning. I don't know, but that's probably going to be Saturday, Saturday evening, evening late evening. Yeah, right. So Saturday morning, Eastern Standard Time from 9 a.m. until noon, we're going to have this series of presentations, first by Dr. Dr. John Bergsma. And he's going to focus on the Eucharist being foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And then a second presentation by my dear friend, Mike Aquilina, who is an amazing patrologist, and he's going to focus on the Eucharist and the early church fathers, and especially one passage in Malachi 1, verse 10, which becomes, in a certain sense, the single most quoted, the single most significant Old Testament prophecy that the Eucharist foretell, that, that the Eucharist for, fulfills. And then my presentation is going to kind of build on what we've been doing in this book, Hope to Die, the Christian Meaning of Death and the Resurrection of the Body, because I want to focus on the Eucharist as the sacrament of the resurrection, that the real presence of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus is, of course, the same body that was at the table in the upper room on Holy Thursday, the same body that was hanging on the cross on Good Friday, the same body that was in the tomb buried on Holy Saturday, but more specifically and most precisely, the real presence of Christ's body in the Holy Eucharist is his resurrected body. It is his ascended body. It is divinized, but it's also divinizing us so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that body is made communicable and edible so that we can receive it, but not like we receive a burger and fries and a salad. We assimilate that to our body, but when we receive Holy Communion, the immortal, divinized humanity of Jesus, he assimilates our mortal flesh to his immortal and resurrected body. I'm going to stop there, or people are not going to want to register, but it is so <laughs> exciting. Saturday, June 13th, and then one week later on Saturday, June 20th, 
We're going to have another presentation on Saturday morning, which would probably be, I think, Saturday night. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's simply called Abba Father, because in the U.S., Sunday the 21st is Father's Day. And so we want to focus on Abba Father and look to see how fathering is not only human, but divine, not only physical, but also spiritual. I'll be giving a talk on St. Joseph. Mike Aquilino will be giving a, a talk on why we call them the early church fathers. And once again, Dr. John Bergman is going to be giving a talk on lessons from the lives of the patriarchs, the, the fathers of our faith back in the Old Testament as well. I'm really excited about these back-to-back events on Saturday the 13th and Saturday the 20th. Uh, we just had a meeting this morning, and at the end, we just kind of felt like we were plugged in to current. It was just exciting. Um, so I'm, I, I, I want to invite everybody who's watching us to consider joining us for those two yes. events. Please do so. Uh, we'll put we'll links go to the, in the, in the comments. Yeah, absolutely. Go go there and, and please sign up. Make the most of this. Uh, we'll put the links as well in the comment section. Doc, this, I mean, the Eucharist is what a topic we can we can talk about. I just want to let you direct this a little bit because this is part two, and we did, we're only scratching the surface of what's in this book. But what was your intention behind writing this book? Um, you've written a lot on salvation history. You've written a lot on on uh, the Eucharist. You've done so much in in, in, in space of scripture typology, but this one, um, what makes this different? What makes this, um, and a time like it is now, this is quite interesting. I feel like, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a combination of all those books, um, in this somehow. And it's quite interesting, but could you comment what, what inspired you to do this? Well, first of all, I think you're right in pointing out that it is sort of the accumulation of a lot of other books, you know, that starts with Rome's Sweet Home, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, and especially Lamb's Supper, yes. uh, and all of this leading into a reassessment of, of how we value life as sacred, as a gift from God, but then how we have to step and look through the eyes of faith and realize that there is this other gift of God that is God himself, divine life, that we undervalue and we can lose so easily. And in the name of human rights or freedoms or whatever, we we end up dehumanizing ourselves and you know setting into motion a pandemic that would make COVID-19 look like a rainy day in comparison. You know, because this is the global pandemic that is age old, that isn't hype, that is accurate. It's also something that leaves most people relatively asymptomatic. And yet it shows how infectious sin is, but also how fatal it is and how eternal those fatalities can end up being. If any of this is right, if this is half true, you know, the world ought to stop rotating for just a few hours in order to kind of re-educate everybody and then start it up again so that people can discover that it's not half true. It's entirely true. And it's the truth that ought to be, you know, emblazoned on, if not, headlines or front pages, at least in every year of our education in growing up. A second thought that occurs to me about this book is, you know, that it is, um, it's something that I intended for my own reasons and my own timing so that it would come out around Easter of 2020. But it's, you know, that had to decrease because God had his purpose and plan. God had his own sense of timing. He knew what I didn't know, and that was the coronavirus. Mm. He knew what I didn't know, that the world would wake up and discover itself in solidarity. Worldwide, every inhabited nation has shared solidarity in suffering like nobody has ever known for ages. Mm. 
And in the process, the, the Catholic Church is also awakened to find itself in the grip of this sort of fear of suffering and dying. And I think all humans, but especially Catholics, have also discovered in the process that we have a fear of suffering and dying physically that might be exaggerated, disordered. I mean, it's certainly a healthy thing to dread suffering and to avoid death, but it's even more healthy for us to dread that kind of death that is spiritual that occurs through giving consent to mortal sin. So on page 16, I quote the 6th century Bishop of Toledo, St. Julian, in the Prognosticum, the foreknowledge of the world to come. He states, and I quote, everyone fears death of the flesh, few fear death of the soul. What does it mean, death of the soul? Well, mortal sin and original sin. That's the technical terminology that was used back in the 3rd century to describe what is later defined as the original sin. The catechism even uses death of the soul to characterize this. And then St. Julian goes on. All are preoccupied with the coming of the death of the flesh, which sooner or later certainly must come. And for this, they weary themselves. Destined to die, humanity struggles to avoid dying. And yet, destined to live forever, they do not labor to avoid sinning. So when they, avoid, when they struggle to avoid death, they labor in vain. In fact, the most they obtain is that death is delayed, not avoided. If rather they refrain from sinning, their toil will cease and they will live forever. Oh, that we could incite humanity, ourselves included, to be lovers of everlasting life as much as they are lovers of the life that passes away. I mean... This does three things. First, it clarifies what we find already in the Old Testament, because the patriarchs and the prophets didn't have a different faith than we do. They have the same faith in the same Christ who would come and bring salvation and restore divine life. It's foreshadowed for them in a way that it's not for us. It was anticipated by promise. For us, it is realized, and so we can summarize it in the creed as past events, whereas for them, it was all still in the future. But it's the same Christ. It's the same faith. It's the same life that God the Father is intent upon restoring by giving us his Son. That alone explains why the patriarchs behave in such unusual ways, especially when it comes to how preoccupied they are with the burial of their bodies, and not only the burial practices, which are sacred, but also the burial place, which is sacred too, the promised land. It isn't because God can't raise the dead if they're buried in Egypt. It's because Canaan is a piece of property that is meant to be a geographical sign that points beyond itself to heaven, where we're all going to be home, as it were. So it clarifies the faith of the patriarchs as being the same as ours. It also clarifies what Jesus is saying and doing throughout the Gospels in his public ministry, where he's not just teaching about this gift of life that goes beyond the human, the earthly, and the natural. He's also performing certain deeds. I mean, he is healing people of these illnesses. He's helping them overcome their fear. He's helping them to trust in him all the more. But he's also doing some strange things that we're too pious to admit how strange they are. You know, we can tell that his own contemporaries, not only his opponents, but even the disciples are sometimes baffled by the things that he said. I'm thinking especially of in Matthew 8 and 9, 
where he is performing 10 signs, one of which is healing Jairus's daughter. Now, she's on the brink of death, and he's making his way there, and he gets there too late. And by the time he arrives, they're all, in a sense, mourning. They're weeping. They're wailing over the loss of life of Jairus's beloved daughter. And then he says something that we're too pious to admit. It's, it's a name, you know. He says, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. You know, the gospel of our Lord, praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. You know, like a, a, a parrot might say, Polly want a cracker. We, we, we say it, but I mean, we ought to also say, why did you do that, Lord? You know, you just stirred up a hornet's nest. Here they are weeping and wailing with Jairus. And then suddenly they turn on Jesus and begin jeering at him because he got it so wrong, unless he didn't. You know, why would he say she's sleeping? Well, he's going to go in, he's going to raise her from the dead, but he's going to use that as an object lesson to show the death that you dread and fear so inordinately is to me and to Almighty God more like sleep. I mean, sleep can be terrifying, wow. but nothing like the loss of life that is divine, supernatural, and eternal. And so, once again, in John 11, with his beloved friend Lazarus. He's asleep. Well, then I wake up. No, he's dead. Well, Lord Jesus, with all due reverence, why didn't you say so? You know, because the glory of God will be manifested. And so he uses Lazarus once again as another object lesson. And I think in the process, he shows us that the miracles that we want him to perform are actually inferior to the miracles that he desires to perform. We want him to restore physical life and health. We want him to help us overcome physical suffering and death, and that's fine. But the very fact that in Mark 2, for example, when the paralytic is lowered through the ceiling, he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the paralytic is obviously lying there thinking, that's not what I came for. That's not what my friends busted through the ceiling to get, you know. And the opponents are like, that's blasphemous because nobody can forgive sins but God alone. But he knows their thoughts, and so he asks the rhetorical question, which is easier to say, my son, your sins are forgiven. Arise, take up your pallet and walk. So to authorize the fact that he could heal the soul by forgiving the sin, which was for Jesus the higher priority, he says, take up your pallet and go home. So the visible sign of the physical miracle is actually a sign that's pointing beyond itself to the interior act, which for Jesus is much more of a divine prerogative. That was the class A miracle, to heal the soul of the effects of sin, because sin paralyzes our soul even more than that physical ailment paralyzed his body. So over and over again, the deepest healing that Jesus wants to give us is not just healing us of the illness that causes suffering and might lead to death. It's to heal us of this disordered fear that paralyzes us because we just dread the loss of physical life and we just dread the suffering that is involved in the loss of life. But we don't have that dread that comes from the sin that paralyzes, the sin that blinds us, the sin that renders us deaf and defiled and ultimately dead in the presence of God without his life within our soul. And so it's, you know, life, we think we know what that means. Death, we think we know what we dread. You know, it's like Princess Bride. I don't think that word means what you think it means, you know. In this case, the word is not inconceivable. The words are life and death. And so I think Jesus wants to kind of show us that we are, in a certain sense, spiritual zombies. Like in that movie I mentioned before, The Sixth Sense, you know, when yes. a little child says, I see dead people in graves, no walking around. 
They don't know they're dead. They only see what they want to see. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. That Cole figure in the movie is a Christ figure because Jesus wants to whisper, if not shout, I see dead people. They don't know they're dead. They only see what they want to see, you know, and they're all over the place. And, and I am here to offer them a life so that if you keep my word, you shall never see death. You know, and even Jesus, Jewish contemporaries are like, what? If, if, if we keep your word, we'll never see death. Abraham died. Who do you think you are? Well, before Abraham was, I am. And now yes. they're off to the races or he's hiding because they're about to stone him for blasphemy. The good news is better than we realize. And the third thing I want to say mm-hmm. is that we discover not only the same faith as the Old Testament figures and the true mystery of Jesus' public ministry, his, his teaching, but also his healings, but we find the power of the sacraments, not just the Eucharist, that one especially, but the other six as well are meant to give us that life, nurture that life, and make sure we take it all the way home to heaven, where we're not only going to be disembodied souls, but resurrected bodies. And the weakest saint in heaven who has the the leanest resurrected body is going to be immeasurably stronger than the greatest Olympic athlete in human history. And we're not exaggerating. That's not hyperbole. If anything, that is understanding the fact that it's going to be obvious to all when we get home to heaven. So much there. Amazing. So much there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, first point for people who, who are who are hearing this for the first time or may, making these connections. Um, it, you mentioned you, you you talk a lot about typology and that there are things in scripture that are deliberately there. The authors have chosen what words, or I guess inspired by God, what words are, are, are there. So they, they give us enough detail to paint some form of a picture for a spiritual and deeper meaning. And so we need to understand what is the intention of the author. And that and unpacking that gives us a lifetime of, of discovery. Um, so, so that's the first thing we've got to rediscover how to read scripture to, to, to pick these jewels, as you say. Um, so one great way, go to St. Paul Center. There's free online courses, by the way, uh, free. And, and I highly recommend people do that or take it further. The, the, the other thing I wanted to, to touch on, and this is um, the, the, back to the topic, hope to die. I think now I'm getting a taste of why you've chosen this topic. So, to the, to the human ears, hope to die. Who wants to die? Right. After hearing you for the last 45 minutes, now we get it. It's not, we're not talking about um, divine life. We now, you know, this life is passing, and but we have an eternal life we look forward to. And, and this is St. what excites Paul, us. When St. Paul says to the Philippians, for me to live as Christ, because yes. he's carrying on the work of Christ in the church there in, among the Philippians, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. You know, he's either exaggerating or deep down, he's a masochist. Unless, of course, neither is true. I mean, for him to live a human life on earth as an apostle is Christ. But to die is gain. And what does he gain? He gains heaven. And what what does he have right now? St. Paul isn't dead. He's more alive than we are. And he's praying for us like the other apostles and all of the saints and the martyrs. And again, this isn't like piety. This isn't our hope. This isn't mm-hmm. like religious rhetoric. This is the reality of, you know, once we recognize that what we see is what we get, but that what we don't see is also what we get. And we're open to the reality that is invisible. And we are open to the reality that is not only created, but uncreated. And then we're open to the reality of God. And we recognize that he is closer to me than I am to myself. He's closer to us than our own skin. 
And he gave us bodies from the beginning. And even though we have a love-hate relationship with our body from indulging too much, and then when we get fat or when we get sick or when we face death, you know, we just want to discard our bodies like, you know, uh, a carton that, that is emptied of its contents. But God loved us in the beginning when he gave us bodies. He loved us to the end there at Calvary. And he's going to love us to the ultimate end when we get our bodies back. And he's going to show us why he assumed human nature in order to divinize it, but also why he made us as human persons to become sons and daughters of God and not mere creatures, not mere servants. And so, yeah, you know, and I also want to just kind of press pause for a moment and maybe even rewind because you were talking about interpreting scripture and beginning with the human authors. But it's important to remember from 2 Peter 1.9 and other passages that the authors of scripture were given the gift of prophecy, even those that we don't call prophets. So the patriarchs, you know, scripture is not just a book that contains certain books that are prophetic. All of scripture is prophecy because all of scripture is inspired. And it's not just like oil over the water. It isn't just the Holy Spirit overriding the human writers. It's the whole, it's the Holy Spirit endowing the human writers as prophets with a divine perspective that goes beyond the flat one-dimensional historical narrative that we read without any effort or without any faith. Suddenly it's like the magic eye art that was so popular back in the nineties that had to be generated by computers because no artist could ever design the magic eye art apart from computers because suddenly it becomes three-dimensional. Prophecy enables us to see, okay, that's not just what the Holy Spirit intended. That's what the Holy Spirit enabled the human writers to write because they have the gift of prophecy. So inspiration is not just about the Bible being the word of God and not just the words of men, not just about being inerrant, because a lot of other books that are not inspired might be devoid of error, but that doesn't make them inspired. The point of inspiration is to give to us this prophetic insight into the meaning of God, into the purpose of history. I should say the meaning of history and the purpose of God. But most especially, it's to give us this insight into who we are in the eyes of God. Now, you can't know that unless God shows you. And what do you call a person that God shows that to and he shows it to others? Prophecy. What is Paul saying for me to live as Christ, to die as gain? But what is true for me is just as true for every one of you. And, and you know, again, it, it's almost as though the gospel, the Catholic gospel, is good news that's out of control. It's like good news on steroids, except it's legal, it's safe, and it's all true and real. And reality is so much more than this world of viruses or of riots and all yes. the other things that are yes. going on around us. Yeah, thank you for saying that. This idea of um, freedom. So we, we are very anxious. I mean, anxiety has gone through the roof right now. In, in, and we're seeing more and more. We, you understand one in three people suffer from anxiety. And that's now uh, amplified through this this lockdown and this COVID nineteen right. um, depression, mental illness, all this. We've lost our purpose. I've I've heard you say many times in, in the past. If we truly believe God's role in our life, we've got nothing to be anxious about. So I'd love for you to unpack. Now, there's this freedom here. Let's not fear death because it's actually gain, as you were saying. This should help give us a freedom and an inner peace that nothing else can, if we understand the okay. reality here. So freedom and fear, you know, yes. uh, I think we have to understand that God wants our freedom more than we do. 
Mm. But God wants freedom in terms of truth, you know. And so he calls us to the freedom of the children of God, as we read in St. Paul. Uh, but we have to recognize that freedom is not defined negatively as freedom from his law, freedom from his authority. Uh, that's how the late medievals defined it. Mm. Freedom is rather freedom for excellence, freedom for virtue. You know, so the train, if it exercises freedom by jumping the tracks, misuses the freedom. The, the goldfish in the bowl decides to freely jump out while it freely dies on the carpet. The people who are in heaven right now are truly free, and yet they're unable to sin. Why? Because they've been perfected by love. And so they recognize that the logic of God's law is a logic of love. He wants us to love as we have been loved. And he wants us to love in a way that is very demanding, but he always gives to us what we need to in order to love like he loves. So that's freedom. That's why the saints in heaven are not less free than we are, but infinitely more free, even though they're incapable of sinning, because love is perfected. Therefore, Beautiful. fear. And as you probably know, we read in Scripture 365 times, just enough for every day of the year, be not afraid, be not afraid. But never do we read, hey, you've got nothing to be afraid of. There's a lot to be afraid of. But the fact is, if the Lord God is with us, and he is, we don't have any reason to give in to fear. We have every reason to recognize the scary things around us, but to recognize, okay, greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. Who's within the world? The devil. Satan. We're no match for him, but he's no match for God, and God is in us. So we can go forth into the darkness and recognize that the darkness is darker than any of us ever imagined it would be in the year 2020. But the light of the gospel is immeasurably greater than we thought it was, and it's infinitely brighter than the darkness is dark. And so we can curse the darkness, or we can look for light switches. And the more that we turn on the light of the truth of the Catholic gospel in Scripture, the more we're going to say, okay, this is why God would allow it to get so dark precisely so we'd come back to the light and say, man, did we take that for granted? Wow. Wow. Brilliant. Um, well, well, let's, we've got a few minutes here. Maybe we can dive into some of yeah, those questions. Start shooting away. I'll try All to right, be quick. Every church claims to have the Holy Spirit and each of them has its own uh, conception of baptism, its own conception of divinity of Jesus, its own conception of predestination, its own conception of original sin, uh, women's ministry, the veil, and so on. A Methodist pastor, this is a long question. Let me just get this right. What, what, Cannot what, be what a pastor. Answer that first part. Yes. And maybe we can anticipate the other parts. You know, yes. uh, I was a Protestant. I was a vehement anti-Catholic. I was a Presbyterian pastor, a hyper-Calvinist, according to my friends, a logically consistent one, according to me. But I do come to believe that God is not just sovereign. He is God, the Father Almighty. So what would an almighty father do? He would father a family by sending his son and then sending the Holy Spirit. And it's because I believe in the Holy Spirit that I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It isn't something man-made, not at all. It is something that is God-given. And so the Holy Spirit causes our unity. But it's not just unity in spiritual, warm, fuzzy feelings. It's unity in doctrine. It is unity in morality. It is unity in worship, you know, and we might have Melkite and Maronite and Latin rite and Byzantine rite, but I mean, those represent a diversity that actually enhances our unity. The fact that I have six kids and not one kid doesn't 
diminish the unity of my family, the way they love each other. And by the way, my son, Jeremiah, is going to be ordained to the transitional diaconate at the end of this week on Friday. So please uh, keep Jeremiah in prayer. And Joe's slated to be ordained in two years. But I mean, God is a father. He sends the son to give us the spirit. The Catholic Church is not just a bigger and older denomination than any other. It is the family that God is fathering. It is the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the source of the teaching. It empowers the worship. It also is endowing the saints with the capacity to pray for us. They're in heaven. That isn't a different denomination. And so all of these competing views that come from the last 503 years from the Protestant Reformation, we have now over 40,000 different denominations. All of them have been founded by people who thought they got it right. But there's only one church that Christ said, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And he gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter, so that what he binds will be bound, what he loses will be loosed. Ultimately, it's not Peter, it's Christ, who exercised his infallible authority through fallible men, in writing scripture, all Christians believe that's infallible, written by fallible men. If the Holy Spirit could do it back then in the first century, the Holy Spirit can do it for 21 centuries. And as Catholic Christians, we are Bible Christians who believe that Christ has been maintaining the church, fulfilling the promise that the gates of Hades shall not prevail. I hope that at least scratches the yes, surface. I think so. Um, thank you. Um, thanks for that question. The, the next one here is um, about the relationship and differences between doctrines, infallible doctrines, and dogma. Um, and there, there could be a lot of misconceptions here. So uh, how, how do we differentiate between them? Well, you know, when you talk about infallible dogma, we're talking about things that go back to the Apostles' Creed, to mm. the Word of God, in Scripture and in living tradition. So when we recognize that certain dogmas have been defined ex cathedra, you know, from the chair you know, in a binding way, such as the Immaculate Conception in 1854 or the Bodily Assumption in 1950. Mary was not assumed into heaven in 1950, but back in the first century. The definition of the dogma achieves a consensus that the Holy Spirit has brought about through studying scripture, through basically prayer and contemplation. But the hierarchy of truths is not, well, what is the most authoritatively defined? The hierarchy of truths is the objective order reality. The highest mystery is the Trinity. That's who God is. Then the incarnation shows us what the Father did in sending the Son. The Paschal mystery is the third one. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he has achieved life for us. The gift of the Holy Spirit empowering the church through the sacraments to make sinners into saints. That, in effect, is the hierarchy of truths. And all of that doctrine is basically summed up in the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed that goes back to the first century. It goes back to what it was you had to believe in order to receive baptism, because in baptism, you get the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You get Christ, whose birth, death, and resurrection. You get to join the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the creed, in a certain sense, is our pledge of allegiance to something more than a nation, the U.S. or Australia or Malaysia. It really is what causes us to enter into communion with a family that doesn't originate in the Vatican, but in heaven. The Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is. The Pope is the vicar of Christ, and he goes to confession on a regular basis for good reason, like I do. I go weekly, and my, my, my wife never says I go too often, nor do my kids. But this power is the power of love, the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit operating through the saints and also through the church on earth. Thank you. And there's more to that uh, if you want to um, yeah, research more. Sure. But absolutely. 
Now, the, uh, there is one more comment, and then maybe we can touch on it since it is such a big deal. We're seeing in the news headlines um, uh, in, a, in the States, we see it here in Australia and, and across this region, but there is this huge, these riots across your country. Um, um, th there's a comment about, and I guess we need to give it context, but racism is never right, never, and they're never. Um, we, we, it's not a, the Catholics. We reject racism at all costs. So we'll start with that. But then, how do we comment in this whole um, environment now? Watching the news, um, how do we how do we shed light with our faith? Um, well, we've been talking about sin, original yes. sin, actual sin, structural, social sin, pride, disobedience, mm -hmm. and we trace the solution to sin back to the Father who sends the Son to give us the Spirit. What does it mean if God is a Father? Where is family? This precludes nationalism. This precludes racism. Jesus didn't suffer and die for white people. He suffered and died for all people. Every black person, every white person, every human person is a brother or sister in Christ, at least potentially. And the Holy Spirit can operate in them. And so the Catholic Church, I'm convinced, is the one thing that is called the transcend race, ethnicity, national boundaries. It's the only United Nations that will work in uniting nations and showing us that we're more than Americans. We're more than Australians. We are sons and daughters of God. And there's one family, it's called the Catholic Church. And it's not Catholic because it's international or global. It's Catholic because it's universal, heaven and earth, God and humanity. And I'm convinced if we could just let this lion out of his cage, he would roar and dispel racism from the hearts of all people. And that's a great way to close. We are out of time. Um, I want to thank oh. you very much. <laughs> thank you so much for, for your time with us today. And uh, please know of our prayers, our support. Just a, maybe an invitation. Those who, who are still not familiar with St. Paul Center, what it does, um, what, what could they do? They could sign up to an email list or what, how do they get to know more about the St. Paul Center? That's right. They can go to stpaulcenter.com and give us their email and they will be subscribed to all of our programs. They can get a lot of free online material for beginners, intermediate, advanced Bible study, doctrine, that sort of thing as well. But they will also find out about what's happening Saturday, June 13th, and that is the Corpus Christi event. And likewise, Saturday, June 20th, and that is the uh, Abba Father event where we have these presenters, including me, and there's going to be, it's going to be live and there'll be opportunities for Q&A for 15, 20, sometimes 25 minutes after each of the talks. And I mean, we have, we have more fun than a barrel of monkeys. You know? <laughs> and Sharpa, I got to just say, thank you so much. You're the only person I've gotten to converse with twice in the last three months during this COVID crisis. And I have enjoyed this every bit as much as the first one, and maybe slightly more. I don't know. I'm a man of the moment. But if ever there's an opportunity to do it again, here's my arm. Please twist it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, we're praying. We're still praying heavily um, for one day that the incarnation oh. has happened. But will, will Scott Hahn come down to this region? So to all the Filipinos, to all the Singaporeans, to the Malaysians, Indonesians, Australians, those in this region, Let's pray. One day we'll make it possible. The borders will open oh, and please God will see God you and Kimberly. Amen. Thank so, you. Um, and then don't forget, this is the copy, Hope to Die, available in the United States. Go to St. Paul Center um, right now. The link is down below. And those in Australia, please go to perusiamedia.com, available right now. Get it. You Do yourself a favor. This is life-changing. I honestly can't recommend this enough. So do that and get that today. And, and pray for the ministry, St. Paul Center, Scott Hahn himself, the Steubenville University, 
over there, so Franciscan University, Perusia Media. And if you don't know much about us, please invite, I invite you to come to the website, perusiamedia.com, and check us out. And we've got a new closed group as well for those who love these podcasts. We'll be releasing more podcasts every single week. So thank you once again. If I can ask this to close in prayer, Dr. Hahn, and, um, and I, I should also mention, look out for, in a few weeks, at the end of the month, there will be a, a homeschooling um, retreat or a, a conference, which Kimberly will be a keynote in. So Kimberly will be part of this homeschooling virtual conference at the very last weekend of this month. So look out for that. Um, details will be coming out shortly. And look out for Kimberly's new podcast, Beloved and Blessed, okay. that's going to be starting here at the end of the month. Uh, Beckett and she have been working on it. And I'm so excited. I think women are going to find so much beautiful wisdom there. But oh, let's fantastic. do concluded prayer in the name Thank of you. the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, Father of life, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you in his holy and powerful name for the spirit of Pentecost to come down upon us, to renew our covenant with you, to renew the life of Christ within us. We pray also for the superabundant mercy of Christ to heal our hearts, to heal our homes, to heal our cities and our nations of the sin of pride, the sin of racism, the sin of selfishness in all of its subtle forms. Help us, O oh Lord, not to give in to fear. Help us, O oh Lord, to rise in faith. Help us, dear Father, to accept the grace of Christ for you to heal us and to forgive us and to set us free. For we ask all of these things once again in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the name Amen. of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you so, so much. That's another week. That's a Perusia podcast. Thank you to everyone who's listening. And please pray for us. You're all in our prayers. 